Okay, so I have kind of a, um, just a little brief guide for what we're going to do. <laughs> this is not uh, This is for all three times we're going to have. It's just a very, very light outline so that you can kind of follow where we are. So if you want to just hand it out, that would be great. And we will go from there. So while you're getting those, if you have your Bible, it's okay if you don't. If you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. It's right before Psalm 2. And we're going to start every session reading this psalm together. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law, on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 1 is an introduction to the entire book of Psalms, as you know, and it is a a simple contrast. Contrast between the man who would submit to the Lord, the man who would believe that we have a sin problem and need to submit to Christ and come by faith to salvation and humble ourselves and say, I have nothing to offer you. Beginning in verse 4, the contrast is with the wicked. The wicked is a technical term in Psalms for those who reject the Lord. Those who say, I will stand on my own two feet before God and I will be fine. Well, what does verse 4 say? The wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. They will not stand in the judgment. And so I just wanted to make that as our our starting point um, tonight. Now, 99 out of 100 times I get up to talk, I'm going to be going through a text and I'm going to be expositing the text. And you're used to that Sunday morning, Sunday night, um, Tuesday evenings and so forth. These are going to be a little different. We might call what I'm going to do a biographically inspired Bible study. And it's something that's been impactful to me. What I'd like to do is just make some observations from Scripture that Thomas Watson made. And I've adapted, made some short Bible studies um, with some profound thoughts from Watson. And basically what I want to see is, is what is it like to get back into the mind of a Puritan, of a man who lived um, 350 years ago and walked with the Lord in a way that many of us really can only imagine. And, and so that's what I want to do. And before we start, I've got to say, and I, I don't say this lightly, but my own study of what Thomas Watson has written, for me personally, just as a Christian, not as a pastor, but as a Christian, has been the most impactful thing in my own life in probably two years. Uh, just profound thoughts. He was, a, he was an incredible thinker. But first of all, wait, let me back up and give you a little background. What is a Puritan and why are they important? And the only thing I knew about Puritans even a few years ago was that there was a picture of one on the Quaker Oaks. 
Uh, that was it. You know, it's okay. That's what these guys are. I, I was always taught that they were the people who are bored with life and they're really stodgy and they go to bed at 6.30 and they get up at 2 a.m. And, and they're just, well, that's Bart. Sorry, Bart, about that. That's, uh, <laughs> I, I just described your hours. Didn't want you to feel slighted there. But that's, that's just a stereotype. Let me tell you who the Puritans are because I feel a kinship with them and you should too because they're in heaven. They were a group of Protestants in England, and they, they rose to know this in the 16th century. And really, for basically 200 years, they were pretty prominent. They preached the doctrines of grace. They believed in the doctrine of election. They believed in salvation by grace alone through faith. That It's not by works that any man can ever impress God. They also preached against the overcomplication of the stodgy religion of the Church of England. And they just said, we need to be done with that. So they wanted to purify the church. Thus, they were called the Puritans. In the 17th century, the Act of Uniformity was passed by Parliament. The Act of Uniformity said that every church in England had to do the same things that the Church of England did. In other words, you had to cookie-cutter everything. And that included all their pomp and circumstance and ceremony, even the Anglican clothing and traditions And the Puritans refused. They said, we're not doing it. And so they were persecuted, and all of the Puritan pastors in England lost their jobs. They were all thrown out. Well, one famous Puritan, for example, John Bunyan, he was in prison during this time. That's when he wrote Pilgrim's Progress um, in prison. He was a genius of a preacher, an uneducated man who just was a thinker, though. The Puritans valued holiness. They valued obedience. They valued consistency. They wrote extensively. They wrote deeply about uh, scripture. I think if we could put it this way, compared to 21st century Christians, they were giants in knowledge and in obedience to Christ. I mean, they, they understood more about scripture by the age of 15 than most of us will in our lifetime because their families and their culture just, just steeped them in the Bible and in the faith. They were zealous for the kingdom of God. They were zealous for the purity of doctrine and they would literally, and many did, defend sound doctrine to the death. They loved and treasured and valued preaching. Preaching was the center of their life. Preaching was the center of their walk with the Lord. It was the center of their family time. And for them, they said that the sermon began when you arrived home. That when you got home, you began to do the things that the Puritan preachers said to do. And Puritan preachers were all about application. And here's a classic Puritan sermon. Basically, they read a text, they said, here's the doctrine of the text, and here's how to apply it to your life. And they did the same thing every time. In fact, some of them would just say, they would read the text, and then they would say, doctrine. Then they would begin to go through all the doctrinal implications of that text. Then they would say, application. And they would go through all the applications. It wasn't unusual. You guys think, man, if Steve gives me three applications at the end, my brain can't handle that. They'd give 20 and 25 every week. That's the first service on Sunday. Then the second service on Sunday, you get a different sermon with different ones. The fathers were expected to write these down and to take notes, or if they weren't, uh, weren't educated yet, sometimes their wives would write these down and give them to them. Then they would go home, and they would say, now the sermon begins, and they would sit down with their wives and their children, and they would say, here are the applications, and how are we going to do that this week? It's a phenomenal way to live. And so they, they were giants um, spiritually. They were adamant about applying the word of God to life. Puritan sermons were routinely known to go two hours. 
and they loved it and they cherished it. Their minds weren't completely sat dry by video games and cell phones. They could actually think and listen. They're, they're pictured in culture, I think even today, in various stereotypical terms, as people who are boring and dull and never smiled, kind of how Calvinists are pictured now. You know, so we're, the, we're the dull guys. Just to give you an example of the fact that they were the least dull people you wanted to, you wanted to be around, they wrote extensively on the subject of human sexuality. I mean, they, they wrote on this because it was in Scripture. Certainly Puritans restricted sexual activity to marriage, but one Puritan wrote this. Husbands and wives should live and share each other, quote, with goodwill and delight, willingly, readily, and cheerfully. They wrote on marriage, they wrote on sexuality and marriage all the time because it was God's design. And so they, they lived very joyful lives, very happy lives, because they lived in the center of obedience to the Lord. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Thomas Watson, specifically. He was an English Puritan preacher and an author. He only lived to the age of 66. But he was known as a profound thinker. He was a prolific author for his time, writing a couple of dozen books. In 1666, he published a book called A Godly Man's Picture. And that's the material I'm going to use tonight and tomorrow to kind of go through that. I've read it. I've soaked in it. I've bathed in it. It is a phenomenal book. We're going to offer it in the bookstore at Grace Bible Church soon um, because every one of you need to read it. So I'm readily saying, and I don't normally do this, I'm readily saying everything I'm doing tonight is a complete ripoff of Thomas Watson. If that doesn't make you feel good, it's 350 years old, so I don't feel too bad about it. So what we're going to do is 15 pictures of godly manliness from Thomas Watson. We'll do five in each session, get to as many as we can. I'm going to use a lot of different scriptures, and so if you're taking any notes, it might almost be more useful to you just to note some some references. You won't have room on this single sheet of paper, so write really small um, if you need to. Now, I have to start with a personal note. Watson is a man after my own heart because he loves lists, and he loves structure. We're going to do list after list. There's one time, I believe in the morning where I will give you a list of ten things as part of a list of seven things as part of a list of four things. He just organizes his thoughts that way, and it's a tremendous way to think. So you're going to hear lots of lists. I'm going to say a few times, here's seven things he said about this. Here's 11 things he said about that. Um, If you want to catch all of them, get the book, A Godly Man's Picture. That would be the easiest thing. So let's start with the first picture. The first picture is that a godly man is a man of knowledge. A man of knowledge. Proverbs 14.18 Proverbs 14.18 says the simple inherit folly but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. And Watson says this There is a great difference between one who has read of a country and another who has viewed the country and tasted its fruits and spices. So in other words he's speaking of knowledge of the Lord. You can hear about the Lord or you can know the Lord and they're two different, completely different things. And he gives several qualities of the knowledge of a godly man. Here's the first list. There's seven of them. First of all, it is grounded knowledge. It's grounded knowledge. Colossians 1.23 says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. 
There's the knowledge that's stable, it's steadfast, it never changes, you're just building on it. There's a grounding in that the word and the spirit of God have, have conformed you, conformed your heart to the knowledge of your salvation. So when, when Watson says a grounded knowledge, he's specifically speaking of knowledge of salvation, understanding the gospel, understanding that I was saved by the, by the atoning work of Christ on the cross and not by anything that I had to offer the Lord. So grounded knowledge starts with the gospel. Second quality of knowledge he gives is appreciative knowledge. Appreciative knowledge. Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. He calls this knowledge that is used to contemplate the greatness of God. In our culture, we're not great contemplators anymore. We don't think a lot. We have lots of things coming in. We have more input in a single day than some people had in a lifetime a thousand years ago. And so we gather all kinds of information, but we don't take time to stop and time out and ponder that information and think about it. I mean, just think about the last time you you looked at the news on the internet. I mean, when I look at the news on the internet, in five minutes I've gone to ten different websites. Instead of reading one sentence and saying, let me think about that for a minute. Well, Watson's reminding us to go back to that time where we're thinkers. And he says this, To compare other things with God is to debase deity, as if you should compare the shining of a glowworm with the sun. As we go through Watson, you're going to find that he thinks profound thoughts. That's not something that he was just massively gifted to do, although that's true also. It's what he learned to do. It's what he was taught to do. And the reason I know it's not just him is you can read any Puritan who's ever read or ever written anything, and they're all profound thinkers because they think about what the Lord does. Third quality of knowledge is it is enlivening knowledge, he calls it. Enlivening knowledge. Psalm 119, verse 93 says, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. He says that true knowledge animates and enlivens. That if you're spending a little bit of time in the Word of God and it's doing nothing for you, then you haven't learned, you haven't been animated, you haven't been contemplating, you haven't been meditating on it, you haven't been prayerful about it, you haven't begged the Lord, show me what this means. Instead of just getting, you know, oh, look at that, time to go to work and setting it down. But taking that time, it should be enlivening knowledge. Once it's enlivened in you, he says the fourth quality is transforming knowledge. Is transforming knowledge. 2 Corinthians 3.18, the Apostle Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And from this comes, this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Watson says this, As a painter looking at a face draws a face like it is in the picture, So looking at Christ in the mirror of the gospel, we are changed into his likeness. It's a great picture. And he says this. This is hilarious. This isn't a quote. I've had to help him out a little bit because his English is old. He says, a person with an average face can look at someone with a handsome face. That won't make you handsome. He says that a wounded man can look at a doctor and that won't heal the wound. But a believer in Christ can look to Christ and that will make him like Christ. That's a great, profound thought. Here's a fifth quality of this knowledge. It's self-emptying knowledge. 
self-emptying knowledge. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2, Watson quotes, Now concerning food offered to idols, we all know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. What Watson said is that prideful knowledge swells the head. That's why, for example, preaching without application is actually bad for a congregation. Because if I give you a bunch of facts about the Bible and you start feeling really good about that, but I haven't told you what to do with it, then now we've just started swelling heads. And honestly, that's the reputation a lot of Bible churches have had in, in decades past is, is head churches, if you've ever heard that phrase. We never want that reputation. We want the reputation of taking God's word, eating it, chewing it up, swallowing it, and have it come out in our lives. He says that the more he knows, the more he blushes at his own ignorance, if you're a man of God. Did you catch that? If you're a man of God, the more you know, the more you blush at your own ignorance. True knowledge of Christ in the word brings a man out of love with himself. It's the only time I've ever heard that phrase, to fall out of love with yourself. I think that is very true of self-emptying knowledge, that the more you know, the less you think of yourself. Then he says it's growing knowledge. This is the sixth quality. It's growing knowledge. Colossians 1.10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, of the Lord fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. This is pretty phenomenal for Watson to write about this. As I was reading his book, I, I came to realize something. He has such a profound grasp of Scripture. He was taking little pieces of Deuteronomy chapter 17 and applying it to the third chapter of Romans all over the place, which sounds like, well, what's the big deal? You know, you do that all the time. Yeah, he didn't have any tools. He had a Bible. And he just knew his Bible. He was a walking concordance. His growing knowledge was such that he was just steeped in the word. The more the riches of the knowledge of God we have, the more we desire it. By the way, that's how you know somebody's not a believer. That they, they, they learn more, and the more they learn, the less they desire the Lord. That tells you that there's a boredom factor there. There's a, there's a lack of interest. That's why we talk about the way to develop an appetite for the word is to be in the word. That you, you can't say, Lord, I'm really just praying to, to love the word of God. Okay, that's a great prayer, but open it and listen to it and develop the appetite. Sometimes when somebody's been starved for so long, they don't want to eat anymore. And you have to put a little food on their tongue and remind them what the taste is. And then finally, he says it is practical knowledge. It's practical knowledge. Watson applies the other principles and he says this. It is a reproach to a Christian to live in the contradiction of his knowledge, to know that he should be holy and yet to live loosely. So in other words, if your life isn't impacted by the knowledge you have, now you you begin to have a problem and he calls it a reproach. It's a shame. It's something to be ashamed of. In other words, we get in trouble when we behave in a way that contradicts the way we've been taught. I've told you the story before, but it's my privilege to repeat illustrations as necessary. Um, But I I roomed in college uh, one semester uh, with a guy on the football team. He was a believer in Christ. And he told me a story of how he and a couple of other guys got in an elevator in their dorm with another football player who talked all the time about being a Christian, and yet his life was so wicked, and everybody knew it. And these three believing uh, linebacker types got this guy in the elevator and got him by the shirt, put him up on the wall, and said, either live like Christ or stop talking about him. It's your choice. 
And uh, I don't know what the guy did. I was dying to know, but I bet he made one of those choices. And that was the right thing for them to do. Maybe a little less violent, but uh, <laughs> it was the right thing to do. All right, so here's the second picture. First picture is growing in knowledge. Second picture is a man fired with love. A man fired with love. And no, that, that doesn't mean that you got let go from your job, but it was really gentle uh, in the way they did it. This is a different fired Specifically, fired with love toward God. Psalm 116, verse 1. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Watson said that a godly man is overwhelmed with love for God. There's, a, there's a, an overflow. It's not something you're trying to generate. It's just there. It's natural. Think about the apostle Peter. He seemed almost hurt. When the Lord Jesus asked him a very simple question for the second time in John 21, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And what did Peter say? Lord, you know I love you. It hurt him. Watson made a comment about that. He said, yes, Peter had denied Christ, certainly before the, the crucifixion, but it was out of lack of strength, not out of lack of love. And there's a big difference. Psalm 119, 57, the Lord is my portion. Watson comments on this. Portion means my share, my possession, my inheritance. In other words, God is what you inherit. That in Christ, you have inherited God. He is that which you love. Augustine said this, I would hate my own soul if I found it not loving God. Watson put it this way, you ought to loathe yourself if you don't love God. That kind of goes contrary to our self-esteem culture, doesn't it? What's the result of loving God? You get thirstier and thirstier for him. You have a hunger for him. Watson says it this way, a sip of the wine of the spirit whets the appetite for the whole bottle. It's a great way of thinking about it. This is the eagerness that the Apostle Paul expressed in 2 Timothy 4.8. He said, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to, here's the key phrase, all who have loved his appearing. One of the ways I know somebody is really growing in Christ is that their desire for Christ to return grows and grows. That if if they're saying, I need to accomplish A, B, C, X, Y, Z before I see Christ, That's not a growing believer. That's not somebody fired by love. That's somebody mediocre in love. Apostle Paul said in Philippians 1, 22 and 23, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet shall I choose, which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. So there's a desire to see the Lord. Watson tells the true story of a mother and a nine-year-old child And he quotes them. The child said, Mother, do you think God will starve us? Because they were in very hard times. No child, said the mother, he will not. And the child said, but if he does, we must still love him and serve him. That's love for the Lord. I found as I was reading this book, it, it made me very uncomfortable because Watson asks a lot of diagnostic questions. If he hadn't been a theologian, he would have been a great doctor. Because he is a diagnostician. He asks these questions. Do we love God? Okay, that's easy to answer. Oh yeah, sure I do. But then he gets harder. Is he our treasure and center? What is it in my life that demonstrates that? 
Can we call God our joy, or is that just something we say to each other, or is there a genuine joy there? Do we delight in drawing near to Him and to come into His presence with singing? Do we love Him for His beauty more than for His treasures? In other words, do we love Him for who He is more than what He can do for me? And I like this one. Do we love Him when He seems not to love us? Do we still love Him when we don't see evidence? Man of God is fired with love. Then very, I think very basically, the third picture is a godly man is a man like God. A man like God. Obviously, that's a standard we can't attain to, but it's one that we aim for. Second Timothy, I'm sorry, Second Peter 1, 3, and 4. Second Peter 1, 3, and 4. Peter says this. His divine nature has been granted to us, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Listen to this. So that through them, the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. That's an awesome thought to think about. Partakers of the divine nature. He goes on, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Watson said this, it is one thing to profess God, it is quite another to resemble him. That's a huge difference. He says this also, he has the same judgment of God, speaking of a godly man. He thinks of things as God thinks of them. He has a godlike disposition. He bears God's name and image. Godliness is godlikeness. Somebody asked me that recently, uh, what, what do you mean by godliness? I wish I had read Watson before I, I answered because godliness is godlikeness, doing what he would do. Now, his primary application of being like God is in the area of holiness. Now, we have probably a more precise definition of holiness than Watson had, so let me kind of clear this up. When Watson would say holiness, we would say purity. We would say obedience. I would say holiness isn't an attribute of God. Um, He would say it's an attribute of God. I don't think holiness is an attribute of God. I think when you take all of the attributes of God, put them together, put an equal sign there, equals holiness. Everything that God is makes him holy, set apart, different. That there is everything in the universe and then there's God. He's a different category. That's what we would say holy. So when we say holy for the rest of this time, I'm really talking about purity, but I'll use Watson's word at times. And Watson made a spectacular illustration. He said the Christian is like a temple. And he made a comparison between two temples. He said the Egyptian temples are beautiful on the outside, but a believer in Christ is like Solomon's temple that has gold on the inside. And I've never been in an Egyptian temple, but I've seen the insides of them on pictures. I don't want to go see a bunch of sandstone. I want to see gold on the inside. I want to see the good stuff. And so he says, we're like the, the, the temple of Solomon, that we conform to the Lord's will, even in our thoughts, that we discipline our thoughts to think the way God would think. And we have an example in Christ to respond to situations in life the way we believe Christ would. He always responded in obedience and in trust. I had to, years ago, I did a little project for myself. I wrote a paper trying to play devil's advocate and find ways in the Gospels that maybe Jesus reacted the wrong way. And it was just to kind of 
to, to see it from another angle, and I began to research and read, and I would read unbelievers and what they said about Jesus. By the time I finished reading seven or eight different sources and trying to, trying to pretend to be an unbeliever and write this, I was sick to my stomach, I felt disgusted, and I hit a giant brick wall because you can't find a single example of Jesus ever reacting the wrong way, ever. And so he is a wonderful example for us. Watson gives some lessons in holiness. I think he gave like 20. I took four of them. First of all, the godly man sets himself against evil in himself. The godly man sets himself against evil in himself. The godly man, like Jude 23 says, hates even the garment stained by the flesh. He hates the, put it in our our vernacular, you hate the t-shirt you were wearing when you sinned against your wife. You hate the shoes you were wearing when you went someplace you shouldn't have been. That there's just a loathing of your own sin. They hate even the appearance of looking like they're sinning. The godly man sets himself against evil in himself. Second lesson in holiness Watson gives us, the godly man is an advocate for holiness. He's an advocate for holiness. Psalm 119.46, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. Now, what does he mean that he's an advocate for holiness? It means that he can share his faith with somebody without somebody pointing back to them and saying, the life you live doesn't look like what you're talking about. That he doesn't have to keep his mouth shut. That he can live what he believes and he can believe what he lives. There's a third lesson in holiness. This is a long one. Although we make it, we made positional, I'm sorry, Although we are made positionally holy in Christ, true holy conduct delights God. Let me repeat that. Although we are made positionally holy in Christ, true holy conduct delights God. If you've been at Grace Bible Church any length of time at all, you understand that there is positional sanctification, meaning that before God, you have been justified. Justification, positional sanctification, it's the same thing, that In the record books of heaven, in the halls of heaven, you have been counted as righteous in Christ. But Watson's application is just because you've been counted righteous, the Lord still likes it when you act like it. That when you you demonstrate that. That holiness is the stamp of God that shows we belong to him. That our lives are a living, breathing representation of who he is. And then this last lesson about holiness, and this is the one that really hits me between the eyes, ought to do the same for you. Holiness fits us for communion with God. That is a really Puritan thought. Holiness fits us for communion with God. Not in the sense of a works-based righteousness that because I've been acting really good for the last 24 hours, I feel good going to church. That's, That's legalism. Holiness is a heartfelt desire to do what the Lord would have you to do. That makes you fit for communion. In the sense that the heart is freed from the guilt of unconfessed sin or habitual rebellion, you enjoy sweet fellowship with the Lord. When you've gone to pray and you have not confessed sin, I guarantee you, if you will start your prayer time by confessing sin, the rest of your prayer time is much sweeter. It's much, much more of a communion because you know there's nothing between us. Have you ever had a conversation with your wife and you... You're 15 minutes into it and you realize that she's been a million miles away and kind of been doing this. And you go, oh, I get it. 
okay, what is it? And then you have to get things right with her because something stupid you said the night before has been bothering her ever since. You couldn't have sweet communion with her. Then once you confess your sin, kiss feet, whatever you have to do to make that right, and you say, okay, sweetie, are we good now? And she says, yeah, we're good. What happens then? Then you have sweet fellowship. Holiness, not having anything between us and the Lord, fits us for worship, fits us to commune with the Lord. You know, I can, um, I've been preaching for a long time. I would never do this, but I've been preaching long enough to look out and see faces, and I can almost tell sometimes when somebody is not right with the Lord because they're not there. They're fidgety. They look nervous when last week they were right there and with me, and I know something's going on. Something has built a wall between you and the Word of God, you and the preached Word. So I I can almost see it, so let that be a warning to you. (laughs) Here's a fourth picture of the godly man. Similarly, A man careful about the worship of God. He is a man careful about the worship of God. Watson uses the example of Exodus 25 that God showed Moses precisely how to build the tabernacle, how it was to be made. He gave exact measurements, exact materials. He even raised up craftsmen who were to do things just right. God cares about the worship of himself enough to demand precision in worship. He demands precision of us. He also, Watson gave the example from Leviticus 10 of Nadab and Abihu who offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord and they paid with their lives. We don't know their, their heart's desire. Maybe they thought they would just get really creative and let's try to go out, you know, think outside the box. Let's do something really spectacular. And they paid with their lives. It wasn't what the Lord wanted. I think to put it this way, it might be helpful to decide What we think worship really is, is to say that God isn't wise enough to appoint a manner in which he's to be worshipped. That we have to think it up for him. Watson said this, A godly man dare not vary from the pattern which God has shown him in the scripture. And he asked this question, Do we observe that mode of worship which has the stamp of divine authority upon it? He gave a bunch of applications. I just want to give you one. He says this, quote, Those who will add to one part of God's worship will be as ready to take away from another. Those who add to one part of God's worship will be as ready to take away from another. And relevant to his time where, where the Catholic religion was just overwhelming everything, he used the Catholic religion as an example. Catholic, Catholics are not a church. It is a religion of works. It is a false religion. He says this, they bring in altars and crucifixes and lay aside the second commandment that you shall not make for yourself a carved image. They bring in oil and creams in baptism and leave out the cup in the Lord's Supper. They bring in praying for the dead and lay aside the reading of the scriptures intelligibly to the living. In other words, reading them in the language that people could understand. They bring in praying for the dead, lay aside reading the scriptures. His point is, Those who will introduce into God's worship what has not been commanded will also take away the things that have been commanded. And we we read the scripture every Sunday morning together. We we don't live in a culture that tolerates somebody reading out loud very well. And we're just not good at that because we're too busy having our minds pandered to and, and filled with things where we're passive. But we're commanded, pay attention to the public reading of scripture. So we do it. And, and, and we do it as often as we can. 
I think there's a sobriety to worship that really is a personal decision that reflects godliness. How serious am I going to be about this? This is something that every chance I have to talk to teenagers, I I tell them, at some point you're going to have to decide, am I serious about the Lord or not? Am I going to be a grown-up or am I going to stay a child? And ultimately, a teenager who stays a child, 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 child has revealed himself to not be saved because that that deep yearning to worship and to be serious about the Lord. I mean, we don't, we don't think about words like in the Old Testament, hishtakawah, which means to fall on your face with your nose in the dirt. We don't think about words like in the New Testament, proskuneo, which means to prostrate yourself before the Lord. We don't think about weeping before the Lord. We don't think about trembling before the Lord. We don't think about shaking before him. Those are all pictures in the Bible of what it means to worship God, though that there's a seriousness to it, a sobriety. That's why we are, we are staunch, and this, I'll tell you, it came from me, that there aren't going to be lattes at Grace Bible Church while we're singing praises to our king. You would never do that. If Jesus walked in the door, you'd drop that thing, and you'd go home and put a tie on it. You'd say, this is the king of the universe. And so we're going to worship him when we do that. Love lattes, just not while I'm worshiping. <laughs> there is a sobriety to this, there's a sense in which we remember that, that whether in personal worship or in corporate worship, God is holy, and we're privileged to meet with him. We're, I always think it's funny when people come to, to church as if they're doing God a favor. God's doing you a favor by not killing you when you try to worship him. Because you only worship him if you're worthy to worship him, and the only way that you're worthy to worship him is if when he looks at you, he sees Christ if the blood of Christ has, has covered your sin. That's the only way. We don't do God any favors because he has no needs. We're the only ones be- receiving here. We are privileged to meet with him only in the ways that he has prescribed. The word of God, prayer, singing, giving, confessing sin, being thankful, the Lord's table, baptism. That's about it. We don't make up stuff beyond that. Well, let's do one more. Godly man is a man who prizes Christ. A man who prizes Christ. If you read the Puritans at all, they talk about valuing and esteeming and prizing the Lord in hundreds and hundreds of pages. Um, Some of you were at the conference on John Owen recently. John Owen, the the thing you remember about him is why say something in 20 words when you can use 10,000? Because he just wanted to explore... um, the depths of what it means to prize the Lord. John Owen and Thomas Watson is very much the same way, but both of them and many Puritans, it's not unusual to see, firstly, we should think about this. Secondly, we should think about this. Page, 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 page. Twenty-seventhly, we should think about this. Just thinking and thinking and thinking. Watson shows us two things. First, the preciousness of Christ And second, that a godly man esteems and prizes Christ because of the preciousness of Christ. The preciousness of Christ and that a godly man esteems and prizes Christ because of it. First of all, the preciousness of Christ. Christ is compared in scripture to a pearl. Matthew 13, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Christ is precious in his person. 
Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the picture of the glory of God. He's precious just who he is as a person because when you see Christ, you see his glory. He's precious in his offices. He holds three offices minimum from scripture. He holds the office of prophet. Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses said that God would raise up a prophet like him, and that's Christ. He is precious in his office as priest. Hebrews 9, 25 and 26, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He is the priest who offers himself. And then his office of king Revelation 19.16, on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's precious in his benefits, all the benefits of Christ. Watson says this, by Christ all dangers are removed, through Christ all mercies are conveyed, in his blood flows justification, adoption, perseverance, and glorification. That's just thinking about about esteeming Christ and and, and prizing him, that he's precious. And because he's precious, that's just the, the, the logical fact, that's the objective fact, the preciousness of Christ. Now the subjective fact is, what do I do with that? And so he talks about esteeming and prizing Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, 2, the Apostle Paul said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That Paul knows that Christ is the center of the gospel. Christ is the gospel. There's no message other than Christ. And for me personally, I never want to preach a single message about anything in scripture without getting to Christ because he's the center of it all. I mean, we, can, we can preach a message on how to balance your checkbook in a way that pleases the Lord and it ought to make it to the cross because without the cross, I don't care about how I balance my checkbook. Watson wrote of Jesus in terms of fullness, three different ways. These are words and concepts we're not used to, and so it's good to stretch our minds. Three different ways. First, he calls it the fullness of variety, the fullness of variety. And he quotes Colossians 2, 3, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What does that mean? Everything that there ever is to have ever been known, Christ knows it. Everything that there ever is to be as deity, which we know from Psalm 16 is eternal and infinite, Christ is all of those things. He is, he is full, um, and, and he's, he's full of, uh, he makes a list here, merit and spirit and love. He is an endless treasure of goodness that will never be fully exhausted. And if I could say this too, um, he's an endless treasure of forgiveness that... Uh, you didn't start your saved life with X number of sins that God will forgive and you're whittling them down and you're you know, 48 years old and you've only got six left. So you better, you better die soon or you better be really, really careful. His endless treasure of forgiveness, it never stops. It never stops. Secondly, he speaks of Christ in fullness of degree. Fullness of degree. Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Watson says this, Christ has not only a few drops or rays, but is more full of goodness than the sun is of light. In other words, all that God is, Christ is. And there's not a subtraction, there's not a lessening 
of that. And then finally, he speaks of fullness in regard to duration, to duration. John 1.16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, that all the grace we'll ever need in eternity is found in Christ. He is an inexhaustible supply. As uh, one pastor said, you can't out-sin Christ's grace toward you. You can't outdo it. Well, just a review that a godly man is a man of knowledge. He's a man fired by love. He's a man like God. He's a man careful about the worship of God and a man who prizes Christ. I think one thing I want you to take away from tonight, one thing we learned from the Puritans is the intensity of thought they gave to the Lord. They gave such thought. And they didn't have to get together and not that this is why we're doing this, but they didn't have to get together and have steak and lobster in order to bribe people to hear the word of God. I know that's not what we did. But they just wanted to get together and warm themselves around the fire of God's word all the time and then think about it and talk about it and gather after church as men and women and talk about how do we apply this? Men, how do we, how do we take this home to our families? How do we be better husbands, better fathers? They were great thinkers. What I love about the Puritans is you never get a sense that the world was comp- competing for their affection. You never get that sense at all. I mean, the world utterly lost that battle with the Puritans. They're consumed with Christ. They're enamored by him. They're consumed with the gospel. And they spend their days pursuing a joyful and enjoyable life saturated in their faith. If you lived with the Puritans in their, in their various neighborhoods, they were known as the happiest people you ever met because they were constantly thinking and they trained their minds to think on Christ. I mean, they taught their children the alphabet with Bible verses and with doctrine. Um, and and they, they came to understand that teaching children from a very, very small age, the Bible, lends itself, doesn't guarantee their salvation, but when the Lord does save them, it lends itself to a life saturated with a mind full of Bible. And so they lived lives that, that were reflective of that. Well, that's just a few pictures. By the way, I chose from... Uh, Oh, 50 or 60 different pictures. So uh, we could have been here all week, but we're just going to do 15. So next time we will do five more, and we will, look at that, Chad, we're right on time. I think we'll just, where's Chad? Where'd he go? Right there. I think I'll just close this in prayer, then we'll just move on to the next thing. That'll work? All right. Lord God, I know that some minds, some brains are hurting right now. In our American Christianity, we're just not used to thinking great thoughts. We're not used to thinking deeply. We, we have so much media, so much input coming in. We can't process what we heard five seconds ago before something else new is coming. We, we rarely take the time to read one Bible verse and then walk for an hour and pray about it. So Lord, teach us, help us to grow in our minds, to have our minds renewed as, as Romans 12 tells us to do to be renewed with the good things of the word. Lord, I know that for every guy in here, there is something, there is an arrow that struck their heart. And I pray that even now, perhaps tonight as they lie in their sleeping bags or beds, that that arrow would begin to fester and they would begin to analyze and scrutinize and to contemplate what it is needs to be a little bit different, a little bit more like you, And Lord, perhaps even to analyze and scrutinize, have I truly 
come to faith in Christ, am I a godly man? Meaning, am I a man who has been bought with the blood of Christ? Lord, may those thoughts penetrate our hearts. Thank you for this time of fellowship that we have. I pray that the, the games we play would be enjoyable, would build our, our, our communion with one another, our fellowship, our friendship, and that there would be uh, just a, a ton of joy that goes along with it because of all people on earth, the ones redeemed by Christ are really the only ones who can have true joy. And we aim to express that and to experience that and to enjoy that. Thank you for these men and for their attentiveness. We pray in Christ's name, amen.